to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Natalie Dignam. Today on the Living Heritage podcast, we're exploring blacksmithing in Newfoundland. Uh, We're going to play some audio clips, all about forges that have existed across the island in the past, and we're also going to look at a few forges that you can visit today in Newfoundland. First off, some vocabulary. Uh, Forge and smithy are words used to describe a blacksmith's workshop. In this episode, I'm going to describe the space of the forge. Uh, And we're also going to talk a little bit about the history of the blacksmith trade in Newfoundland. So every settlement in Newfoundland needed a forge, or few. Blacksmiths could make parts for machines and agricultural tools. Um, They also did a lot of shoeing horses, and this job was also done by a tradesman called a farrier. So in Newfoundland, because the fishing industry was so vital to the economy, blacksmiths had a really important role uh, making parts for boats and other fishing equipment as well. My name is Devin Hookey. I'm originally from Champneys West, which is probably about six, seven miles from here, ten minute drive. And I'm working on a ram shed bottle opener, and uh, people seem to like them. I am an Aries, so I like the ram. So, so here we go. I'm just starting on one here now. I'm just going to split down the. That was Devin Hokey, apprentice blacksmith at the Green Family Forge in Trinity. So, uh, in addition to the Green Family Forge in Trinity, you can also visit the Pinkston Forge in Brigus or recreation of Little John's Forge in Bay Roberts. As a trading hub, Trinity had a bunch of forges. The Green family began working there as blacksmiths uh, in the early 1700s. The forge you can visit today was constructed at the turn of the century and in operation until 1955. The next clip is from an interview with Devin Hokey at the Green family forge in 2019. The forge itself here is 1895. It's 124 this, this year, everything in it. Uh, roughly 1,500 artifacts here in the shop. Yeah, so when people come in, we give them the history of the place, we show them around the shop, different parts, what tools were used, technique, and tools that we made and so on. Like many forges across the island, the Green Family Forge is just one example of how the blacksmith trade changed in the middle of the century. In the 1950s and 1960s, forges began closing because people were using cars for transportation and therefore had no need of a blacksmith to shoe their horses. The following clip is from the film I Can't Mind the Time with Tom and William Cody, a film produced by Memorial University in 1985. Tom and William were a father and son who worked as blacksmiths in St. John's in the early to mid-1900s, and they saw firsthand uh, what the introduction of cars and streetcars were uh, doing to their trade. In 1919, Newfoundland joined the world in celebration of peace. The colony had paid a high price in the war. Despite the finery and gaiety and genuine joy that peace had come at last, there were signs that life would never again be the same. As he watched the parades, Tom reflected on how rapidly mechanization had spread during the war, even in Newfoundland. No one now doubted that the gasoline-powered vehicle had come to stay. Yet there was no cause for alarm. Transport remained mixed, and horses were still dominant. The blacksmith trade still seemed as secure as any could be in an uncertain world. Blacksmiths across the island noted a decline in demand for their work during this time. The Pinkston Forge was established by the Pinkston family in the late 1800s in Brigus. John Pinkston, whose father Douglas was the last blacksmith in the family, was actually discouraged from entering the trade because it was considered a fading industry. The following clip is from an interview with John and Dale Russell Fitzpatrick in 2014. Basically, it was a hard job. It was 
pay wasn't good and it was seasonal and I guess you know and, and at our stages I mean the blacksmith's job was was really going at it oh, yeah. you know I mean that's right there was no more schooners there was no more grape blends, there was no more horses so I mean it was you know it was really right. a fading career yeah, yeah. yeah as head blacksmith at the Green Family Forge Wade Iveny told us the blacksmiths back then kept their secrets because of the competition and some of their secrets have died with them Still, researchers in Newfoundland have collected some secrets of the trade. In 1978, researchers from Memorial University interviewed Wilson Osborne, a blacksmith who had been working in the Grand Bank for over 65 years. Wilson Osborne grew up in a small community in Fortune Bay, and as a child of 10, moved to Grand Bank on Newfoundland's Huron Peninsula. There, he became apprentice to a local blacksmith and learned the trade that was to be his life until he retired in 1969. Throughout his career, much of his work involved making ironwork for the vessels that sailed from the peninsula's ports. All the vessels, when I started to learn my trade, uh, were, were sailed, there was no power. Well, the length of the, of the ship and the crew really depended on the, uh, the quality of the blacksmith's work. And he wasn't really supposed to uh, go in for himself until he had sufficient training. Because if uh, any part of the blacksmith's work gave out on the screen trying to leave shore, the vessel would last as well as the main. I took an interval there sailing on a banking vessel to the banks for six months. And I could see where every all the irons they were making for scoring. I could see them under strain and in use. I knew where they went to on the schooner. And if a man came in and said to me, I want a shackle for a certain place on the schooner, I knew what to do with it. The blacksmith idea on the mainland, I would say, in the prairie provinces, what was a man who just shot horses, repaired farm implements, and wagons and cats and so forth. Well, we did it all. You see, a general blacksmith, you, 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 you did vessels work, you shot horses, made the horseshoes, and, and made the bands for cartwheels and put them on. Most of it was vessels work and making anchors. As Osborne says, Newfoundland blacksmiths did it all and were an especially important part of the fishing industry because they made parts for boats. In this interview, Wilson also described how he made a 14-pound anchor. For uh, anchors, of course, you know, uh, we, we used uh, holding the claw. Instead of arc welding them years ago, we weld them. You, you take the, the thumb, beat at the claws, you make a groove in them here, and you put a piece on there, and you heat both parts in the fire, and you weld the two of them together on the anvil. Now, the ones I told you I made uh, 500 in 1946, and every one of them was uh, blacksmith welded. How but big would they have been? Fourteen pounds. The banking vessels for the trawls, that they use these now, say a $10 banker, uh, they would, uh, when they go out in the spring, they would carry 30 anchors, two for each story, and one uh, and a uh, half-sit spare. The first thing I would do if I wanted to make a 14-pound anchor, trawl anchor, I would take a piece of inch iron, I would cut off one piece, 16 and a half inches, this piece. 
I'll cut off the, the, the other, another piece of each iron, uh, uh, two feet, 11 inches. And uh, I'll cut off a piece of five eight, a stock, two feet, four inches. I'll cut off a piece of half inch, two, two feet, uh, why not two feet, but uh, nine and a half inches. And when I had that welded together, I had a 14-pound anchor. John Pinkston remembered helping his father make 50-pound greplin. Uh, this is a word for a small anchor with four or more claws. In the next clip, John describes making a greplin with his father. What he said to me, John, this is too hard at work. I'm not showing you how to do any of this, right? Because he didn't want me at it. But from time to time, like when he was making a greplin, say a greplin, a 50-pound greplin, Someone had, you know, he had physically hold the great plan and, and put the machines in. Somebody had to strike for him, right? So in cases like that, second person was required. Right. And so sometimes he let me strike for him, right? As Wade Ivany from the Green Family Forge suggested, competition was fierce and blacksmith work was not easy. John Pinkston told this story about an instance of blacksmith sabotage at his father's forge in Brigus. Back, uh, I guess, in the... 20s and 30s, well, it was one time, there was something like over the period of six blacksmiths in Brigus, right? Yes. And then there was three. But anyway, at this particular time, I think there was two blacksmiths in Brigus. So there was Aris and Jackson's. Yeah. And previously, I think there was another one, James. Anyway, at this particular time, there was two operating. There was dad, uh, grandfathers and Jackson's down in Jackson's Key. One Saturday morning, dad and grandfather came down. Of course, eight or ten horses lined up. And the window was broken in the forge. So they didn't talk no more about that. Somebody opened up and they got the horse in and the grandfather started pumping the bellows. The bellows wasn't working. He looked in, there was a cut in the bellows about 10 inches long. Now, so grandfather told all the men, why he said, I can't do nothing for you because bellows, somebody cut the bellows. So they said, all right, Mr. Pinkston, you do whatever you go. We're going to wait. We're not going, to, we're not going down to Jackson's. We're going to wait for you to fix the... So grandfather went over to uh, uh, what's the person who fixes shoes? Cobbler. Cobbler. Or leather. Yeah. He went over, and this fella, I don't know his name, is King. Anyway, he came, came over, and he sewed up the bellows. So two hours later, he had the bellows going, and all the men waited for him, and he, they didn't go down to Jackson. So the rumor <laughs> was that Jackson broke the window and cut the bellows. Blacksmiths worked long days, six days a week. Bill Littlejohn's father was the last to operate the family's forge in Coley's Point. Bill remembered, you'd hear the horses' bells before daylight. It was a first-come, first-served basis. You'd hear the horses and the bells and the men shouting at their horses. I can remember waking up in the morning to noises like that. William Cody and his father Tom, who operated a forge in St. John's, also described rising early in the morning and continuing to work into the night. How many hours a day would you work then? Oh, the ten, ten hours was the, was the, the schedule then. Yeah, 60, 60 hours. hours a week. A week. And what would he get for Wilbur or Sally? Would he get? Oh, uh, my father, my father was getting um, 660 a week. 660? Yeah. $6 a year he would pay. But my mother found it out and he was keeping the 60 cents for himself, see? <laughs> <laughs> Something happened, he found it out, anyhow. Yeah. It meant a lot, them times, 60 cents. Yeah. yeah. That was McGrath's. McGrath's. You get a buy a glass of rum then. I don't remember that. I, I do. You could buy a glass of rum for five cents. Yeah. Glass of rum. At that time. Yeah, that time. Yeah. That was rum too, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That was rum. Despite the long days and physically challenging work, forges are also remembered as social places. 
John Pinkston remembers how men would gather at the forge as his father worked. How busy a place was it? Do you always does it was it a gathering place for people or was it for sure? It for was, sure. yeah, Definitely. and it wasn't just the people say lining up for the horses. No, it was, well, of if course, there were no horses there, would people still come and gather you at take the forge? Everybody going to the post office, coming from Ratley Row, Harbour Pond area, had to had to pass the forge, right? Yes. So it wouldn't be uncommon to see five or six men in here, you know, when Dad was working, right? Sure. <clears throat> Sometimes they were a bit of a nuisance because you know if if you had a horse here and the horse got spooked or something, mm. right? Yeah, but. Yeah. Uh, Oh, yeah, it wasn't uncommon to see four or five men there. Muriel Pinkston, John's sister, also recalled hanging out in the forge after school. But uh, other than that, I guess as a child coming in here and watching what he did and bringing my friends in here. and It was a place to come and get warm, too, in the wintertime. Yes. You know? And you're always made welcome. No oh, matter, yeah. Oh, didn't yeah. matter how many you dragged behind no, you? No, he didn't mind. No, <laughs> he, he didn't mind, so... Even after he retired, Muriel said her father would still go to the forge and friends would stop by to chat. I can remember after he retired, right, and he wasn't working here anymore, he would still come out here every single day and just sit in the forge or look around or people come and talk to him. Little John's Forge in Coley's Point, Newfoundland operated from the late 1800s until the 1970s. In the evening, the forge became a social area. All the men would gather there and help pump the bellows to keep the fire going, and as they helped, they would tell yarns and brag about their horses. The shop was a place where local stories were kept alive. You can visit a recreation of Little John's Forge at the Road to Yesterday Museum in Bay Roberts. Today, there's a renewed interest in preserving and passing on these traditional skills, like blacksmithing. Uh, Living history museums like the Green Family Forge or the Pinkston Forge showcase these traditional skills. And through its apprenticeship program, at the Green Family Forge, uh, new blacksmiths like Devin are learning the trade. It's the first job I ever had that when I go home at night, if I'm working on a big project, if I go home at night and I'm training about the night before how I'm going to finish my project the next day, it's just how it is. Right? I loved it when I was a teenager here in high school and I love it now, so it's just how it is. Some blacksmiths in Newfoundland work at their own forges, creating decorative pieces like knives and handles. Some, like Kevin Dillon, a farrier from the Goulds, continue the essential work of shoeing horses. In 2011, Kevin spoke with Mel Squarey about his work as a farrier for the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary. So, when did you first start learning the sho- to shoeing? I started learning when I was about 15 years old. And from a man who was shoeing for about 30 to 40 years. Yeah, he taught me about three years before I went on my own. And is he from the Ghouls as well? Yeah, he's from the Ghouls too. What was his name? Dave Peck. And so how did he start off showing you? Uh, he just let me, first he let me for a couple of months taking off shoes and then each time, each time we go to do it, he'd let me do something a little more, a little different. And then eventually he let me nail the shoes on and stuff. And where did he start learning? Uh, I don't know where exactly he learned. He learned a long time ago, I guess, from the local fella. Okay. Is there any difference in shoeing a racing horse from a mounted unit horse? Yeah, there's a fair bit of difference. Like race horses, you have to tip their angles so they don't interfere and hit hit their legs together. And, and like the mounted horses are pretty straightforward. There's no special trimming or nothing with them. And how long have you been shoeing <coughs> the mounted horses? Mounted horses must be about three years now, I think. Yeah, 
And so how did you get into doing that with the Iron Sea here in St. John's? Uh, the former farrier, Jim Hensforth, I think recommended me from what I can understand. <clears throat> and so is that kind of, is, is a group of farriers in and around this area, are they all pretty well known amongst each other? Yeah, there's probably only about five or six of us, I guess. In this next clip, Jim Miller from the Trinity Historical Society talks about the importance of passing on these traditional skills. So yeah, our mandate in the 60s was basically preservation of built heritage and has since expanded to um, preservation of those traditional skills, which has really become really important to us, um, especially since the blacksmith shop opened. And then we identified the cooperage and we actually have a large collection of shoe cobbler tools that in a long-term plan that was put in place was identified as a possibility of the next step to go into was identifying a, a spot to do shoe shoe coupling I guess it's called um, and another thing that um, was identified was tinsmithing those were two big that was another trade in Trinity that has since gone but we do have some tinsmithing items at the forge and actually Devon the, the, black, the other blacksmith at the forge he's got a bit of an interest in tinsmithing and stuff so we We've had some talks with him about maybe going to some training and stuff in that at some point in time. So those living history skills uh, of the trades are very important to us overall for our operations mm-hmm. um, and will be, I think, going into the future because that seems to be the market now where visitors are even wanting to, to see those things being yeah. demonstrated and even more so wanting to take part. The Green Family Forge started as a static exhibit in the 1990s when Ada Green approached the Trinity Historical Society with her idea to restore the Family Forge as an interpretation center. Um, So it's changed a lot since then, and today the Forge functions as a living history museum or a museum space where visitors can learn and observe the blacksmith trade. In an interview in 2019, Dale Jarvis of Heritage NL and Jim Miller talked about how the Forge has transformed. So I wanted to to talk kind of about the the way things have shifted. So the the original idea was just to have it as a static museum. Yep. And then a museum with some demonstration. Yep. <laughs> and now it is kind of part of your business model or your social enterprise model. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So it's in the last 10 years, I guess, it's or even less, I guess. Uh, it has fallen into the Stark side of yeah, that social enterprise part, arm of our organization. Um, so basically, when we first started, when Wade was by himself, the season would be pretty much from like June until September, like shortly after Labor Day, with demonstrations and sales. And then we first expanded going, we, we became a member of the Craft Council in Newfoundland Labrador. And the first conference that I went to, first craft fair I went to was in 2005, 2006, with some of our product, which was very limited at that point, letter openers and some coat hooks, and we were the only game in town that was doing blacksmithing, and we had a fantastic craft fair, and I think that's when our board realized that there was potential for more, and then we talked to Wade, and he got encouraged and expanded the product line, so as we went forward from that, it started to become more and more and as we got busier in the season expanded, we were able to keep Wade employed longer in the fall. So he went from September into October into November. That's when we realized we needed a second person. If you're interested in visiting the Green Family Forge in Trinity, the Pinkston Forge in Brigus, or the exhibit of Little John's Forge in Bay Roberts, you can find more information online 
or at www.ichblog.ca. If you aren't able to visit a forge yourself, you can enjoy this next clip of blacksmith Devin Hokey crafting a ram's head bottle opener at the Green Family Forge. That's the initial head to the ram's head. So now I'll start working on the horns. I'll take one horn at a time. I'll start bringing around the side to face, right? You gotta make sure those horns are really hot, but not too, too hot so I can... No, I always does this after the horns because the horns may cover the eyes when I turn them. I've made that mistake before. I tried to learn once with it. Tries. You've been listening to the Living Heritage Podcast, a co-production of Heritage NL and CHMR Radio at Memorial University. You can find previous episodes on iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. We're on Twitter at HFNLCA. Do you have a question or a suggestion about an aspect of culture and heritage you want us to explore? Send us your mail and we'll do our best to answer it in an upcoming show. Email us at livingheritagepodcast at gmail.com. Our theme music is by Lache Swing. Thanks for listening.